So on Mother's Day, I started by talking about what some of the, the mom's superpowers were. And one of the requests that I got repeatedly by dads is, do we get to know what some of our superpowers are on Father's Day? And so we're going to start with, with dad's superpowers, because God has uniquely equipped moms to be moms and dads to be dads. And uh, what a great way to start today. What are some of dad's superpowers? And I have ten of them here this morning. Um, superhuman strength. Can you carry a screaming toddler or two? Maybe balanced in midair on your hand. A briefcase, a handful of toys, and still have an arm free to open the door? Better start practicing. You also have superhuman strength when it comes to training your kids, to teach your kids how to say no to things that God hates. Invincibility. Dads have the, the superpower of invincibility. The ability to survive multiple nerf attacks, lightsaber attacks, tackles, David and Goliath reenactment, an accidental kick or two, and still get up to fight another day. Invincibility. Mind reading. That moment in time when, when you can tell your wife really doesn't want you to leave her home alone with the kids so you can go hang out with your buddies another night. The moment in time where you can tell what your kids mean when they say, ah! And you're wondering, is this a scream of death? Is this a scream of fun? Is this a scream of I need something? Mind reading. By location, the ability to be in two places at the same time. Being able to push your daughter on the swing and spotting your son on the monkey bars as he comes flying off all at the same time. Extraordinary diversionary skills. The focus and drive of a child is amazing. Amazing and sometimes maddening. Your toddler really, really wants another kid's prized possession and is about to have a major meltdown. Or you're trying to leave a store and they're trying to leave with, without the toy that they just have to have. How are you going to distract them? Threatening and dragging them out is not an option. Number six, MacGyver fix-it skills. Dad, is that the case? Dad, my toy is broken. So-and-so dropped it, stepped on it, and ran over it. And it doesn't work anymore. Fix it. All right, dads, take out your Swiss Army knife, duct tape, and super glue and rebuild it. You have an hour. Go. You'll find your, you'll find your inner engineer and your latent handyman skills, or you'll be driving to the store right at closing time to buy a new one. Your choice. Protector and spider killer powers. Who gets this job in the family? Dad. We must look strong and brave. Dads, you're the ones that walk around the house with a bat for 30 minutes after you hear something at the gate. No one will harm your family. Amnesia powers. Four simple words have power over strikeouts and other major disappointments in life. I'm proud of you. Maybe followed by let's get ice cream. Those words turn strikeouts around and a host of other disappointments and they turn them into a distant memory. Olympic powers. The ability to turn anything into a game. The trash can sprint. The laundry long bomb. The relay connection. The stick fencing match, also known as the lightsaber duel. Wrestling on the floor after a long day apart. It's a win-win. Mom gets a much-needed break. Dads build lifelong bonds. Transformational powers. You have the power to create value and confidence in your children, especially your daughters. 
If you cherish her, honor her, love her, and affirm her, you will see a woman emerge who is confident in her value and strong in her resolve. With your sons, you can create men out of boys who will cherish and care for women, who honor them and esteem them, men who will walk with God and will in turn raise up godly families themselves. Dads, I think that's the most important superpower you have. Transformational powers in your kids' lives. Ten superhero powers for dads. Ways God has equipped dads to lead their families to stand strong as the head of their homes. Today we're going to continue looking at 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians 16, right in the middle of these final instructions to a church that, that is living in an ungodly world, who has let ungodliness seep into the church, at the middle of the instructions is, are three little words, act like men. And so today I, I want to take this whole chapter, but remember that's the center point of the chapter in verse 13. Act like men. And what does that mean? It, it, it's not just for men. It's written to the whole church. But he's saying act like mature adults. God wants strong, steadfast, firm, sacrificing, spirit-led, serving, courageous men and women to lead His work and to lead His church. And dads, today on Father's Day, we acknowledge that you set the tone for that. You set the example for that that all of us in the church are to follow. So we want to look at chapter 16 as Paul wraps up this book to this church that he cares about. And he wraps up with just a number of instructions that I think all surround how to be a mature believer. How to act like men. And so we can look at this and say, how do we keep the world at bay? How do we stand strong as believers and as a church in a dark world that wants to seep in at every, every crack and every crevice? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And actually, we'll start the last verse of 15. Thank you, Edgar, for sharing God's Word with us last week. Doing a marvelous job of helping us understand the implications of our future with Christ to our walk now. But at the end of chapter 15, and remember there were no chapter divisions in, in the letter. This was just a letter. And so we want to see this, as, how it flows together. At the end of chapter 15, in verse 58, Paul said, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And he basically says, stick with the faith and do a ton of work for God. And and the words he uses are these words that, that dig deep inside of us, especially men, they resonate with us. Be steadfast, be immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. We're like, yeah, I can do that. And verse chapter 16 then flows out of that. How do we do that? How do we make sure we are walking with God? And so we come to the first four verses of 16, and we'll break it up in in several sections. And in the first section, it seems like a left turn. It seems like it's something unrelated, but it is directly related to Paul, Paul's understanding of a spiritual walk and what it means to sacrifice and walk with God. The first section, we can summarize by saying, be faithful and sacrificial in giving for God's work. Be faithful and sacrificial in giving for God's work. Let's read verses 1-4 through together. Now concerning the collection for the saints, and and remember we've been talking about whenever you see now concerning, Paul is probably answering a question that they had sent. And so they had sent a a question about the collection, and, and we don't have all the details here. We can piece some together from Acts and Romans. 
But it looks like Paul had instructed them to begin collecting money for the, the poor believers in Jerusalem. They had been going through a famine. The believers in Jerusalem were also persecuted. And so they were left out a lot of the help. And so Paul is going around, and especially his third missionary journey, the focus is on taking up this collection to help the believers in Jerusalem. What a testimony, by the way, for the church at Corinth, a church of Gentiles, to say we will help the Jews. To, to, to say there are no cultural differences because we are all believers in Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the church of Gal- churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. And so Paul begins by giving instructions for this collection. A seemingly unrelated thing, but when it comes to our money, when it comes to our approach to money, it's directly tied to our maturity in Christ. And so he gives some instructions here. And, and it is about the, helping the saints in Jerusalem. And, and so it is very specific here, but I would agree with almost all the commentators that say, Paul is taking a specific situation and giving us some general principles about giving. Now in this case, what he's talking about may be very directly similar to our benevolent fund or our missionary fund that we, we take up here. But he gives some principles here and in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 that help us understand how we should be giving. And it's part of our, our maturing in Christ, part of our standing faithful to Christ. And so some of the things we see there, the first is that giving is an act of worship. In verse 2, he says, On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. And we know that the first day of every week, the church had already at this point started meeting on Sundays rather than Saturdays to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. And the wording there has this implication of when you come together, on the first day of the week, part of your worship is to give this gift. What a great picture of giving. It's not about, oh, I, I'm forced to give, and, and we've all heard of churches that, that force their, their members to give and maybe collect tax returns. and None of that is, is what's going on here. This is saying, because I love God, because I am grateful for what He's given me, I will give some of it back. You know, so, some of the wording here, it may look like, well, they were storing it up at home and then bringing it. Um, I, I would agree with most of the commentaries that this probably was bringing it to the church and giving it to the church. A couple things that let us know that the, the wording for store it up was the verb form of a, a noun that meant to bring to the, the temple treasury and to give to the temple treasury. But also the, the fact that Paul says, so there will be no collecting when I come requires that it had to have already been at the church. And so this is talking about coming and and giving our gifts to the church, the church then storing that up for when a need arises. But it's about an act of worship. It was part of their worship service. It's why we as a church, we take an offering during the service. Because from the first examples we see in the church, that's what they did. And it's not because, man, we're just going to beg for money and lock the doors until you give enough. No, it's about an opportunity to say, I am grateful to God. It's why we do our offering during worship. Because it's an act of worship. 
It's an act of giving glory to God. And we want to continue to do that and treat it as an act of worship. I love a story I heard of a little boy who, who got that, that giving was an act of worship. And he was sitting in the front row one time and they were giving, they used plates, not bags like we use. And they brought the plate around and he, he said to the usher, can you put it on the ground? And the usher was like, what? And finally the usher did it and he got up and he stood in the plate. And he said, well, I, I don't just want to give my money. I want to give all of me, my time and my energy and my resources. What a great example of giving as an act of worship. To give all of himself. That boy was Robert Moffat, who became a pioneer missionary to Africa. He was the father-in-law of the missionary David Livingstone that opened the doors to Africa. And we'll talk about him in a minute. But he gave his all to God in the act of giving and worship. And God used him in mighty ways. So we see giving as an act of worship. Giving should be done regularly, number two. And we have a number of lists in your notes today because Paul at the end of his chapter sort of gives a lot of lists at the end of his book. But giving should be done regularly. For them it was on Sunday when they met. They were to put something aside and the tense there is this ongoing present that weekly or regularly they were to do it. And so we know that that means that giving should be an act of worship, uh, an act that is done regularly. It doesn't necessarily have to be weekly. Some of you get paid monthly, and so giving becomes regularly monthly or however God puts it on your heart, but it should be a discipline that we do continually and regularly. We also see in verse 2 that it was something that all were expected to participate in. And these are some wording that, that it's like, wow, that's in there? On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside. And Paul doesn't leave exceptions here. He says everyone is supposed to participate. Every believer should be helping the saints in Jerusalem in this case, but should be giving to the work of God. And the question I ask is, has God blessed us with anything? Has He blessed us with anything? If He has, then all of us are to give something back. Rich or poor, any circumstance, all. And one of the ways we practice this is we have my kids, from the time that they could, we have them always give something on Sunday morning. And it it is part of their allowance, but that's something that we want to be teaching them that even our children should be giving, should be participating in the work of God. That was the expectation that Paul had. But then he goes on in verse 2, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So the fourth point of giving there is giving is to be proportionate to what God has given. Giving is to be proportionate to what God has given. There's no exact science of how much you should or shouldn't give. Nobody's checking our wallets. No one's checking our bank accounts. The question is, as we, as we prosper, as God blesses us, we give back to Him in proportion. And what's interesting is that concept of giving in proportion with giving, it implies some intentionality. It implies that I know what God has blessed me with and I know what He has given. And so I intentionally give back a certain percentage of that or a certain portion of that. The regularly implies intentionality as well. And so giving isn't just this impulse, oh, the bag's coming around. It's intentionally saying, I will sacrifice to be part of God's work even with my money. 
Hard thing to talk about, right? Times are tough. The economy is tough. But we see some principles here in God's Word, and He's going to expand on those in 2 Corinthians that help us understand what giving is. C.S. Lewis, when talking about what percentage or what amount we should give, he said, I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. And he understood that giving was to be sacrificial. Even when we don't have a lot. Even when we're wondering how we're going to pay all our bills. Something. Like the poor widow who gave the two copper coins. He goes on in verse 3 and you see another idea about giving. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And that word for gift there is an interesting word. It's, it's the same word we use for spiritual gifts, ironically. It's a grace gift. And this idea that somehow as we give to God's work, we are showing God's grace to other people. Maybe those that need the gospel by giving to our missionaries. Maybe those that have physical needs by giving to our benevolent fund. Maybe those that we're reaching as a church by, by supporting the work of the church. But it's a grace gift a chance to show that to others. The sixth point, though, we don't usually hear talked about when we talk about giving. And so, this is where Paul goes in verses 3 and 4. Let me read those again. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. And the sixth point is the church is to be accountable with the money given. This, isn't, this part isn't to the giver. It's to the people receiving the gift. And do you catch what Paul is saying there? He doesn't, he doesn't want to be accused of mismanaging the money. In fact, he doesn't necessarily want to touch the money. When I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit or who you choose that are, are accountable, that are upright men. I will send them with the money. I'll write letters of, of um, recommendation and they will carry the gift to Jerusalem. Now, now keep in mind, in, in Corinth, where some people were a little dubious about Paul and you had all these divisions, so you had a group that was like, Paul? No, no, Apollos is so much better. How important would this have been? And, and, and so Paul is just completely open and transparent and says, you choose the men. I'll send them. I'll give them letters of recommendation. They'll take your gift. But the principle here is a church, not, not only do, do us as believers give to the work of God, but churches are responsible to be accountable for how that money is used. And we see that through that passage. This is so important in an age where we hear all kinds of abuses. You, you don't want to see me arrive by helicopter next Sunday. Because thank you so much, I needed a new helicopter. It's not what it's about. That's why we at Village, our, our books are completely open. And at any time, any member can go to someone on the deacon board and say, how are we spending our money? That is so important to be transparent and accountable. Because it's not about money, it's about God using His resources for His work. And if it's used for anything else, we are poor stewards of His money. It pains me every time I see a news story of someone asking for millions of dollars for a new jet or asking for this or that. This is about sharing the gospel with a world that needs Christ. This is about discipling men and women for Christ and doing His work. And I pray that we as a church stay accountable to the money that is given. 
So Paul starts with a difficult subject. He starts with money. When he's talking about how to, to be men and women of God, how to be mature believers, be faithful and sacrificial in giving for God's work. And then that resonates with me as a man. Sacrifice means something. Sacrificing for a cause greater than myself means something. And that's what Paul is tapping into here. Second point as we go on in verses 5-12, through 12, we're to follow Paul's example of submission to God and care for others. Follow Paul's example, two areas of submission to God and care for others. And we see some greetings here, but as we read the greetings, look for Paul's heart. Look for what he repeats. Verse 5, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend more time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. Then he talks about a couple of his co-laborers. Verse 10, When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he might return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers." Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. And in this passage, you see a pastor's heart in Paul. You see him caring for the church at Corinth, saying, I want to come to you. And I don't just want to come and say hi and leave. I want to spend some time with you. He's saying this about a church that we just read 15 chapters of as a pretty dysfunctional church at times wouldn't necessarily be people that I'd want to spend a lot of time with. But his pastor's heart says, I care about you. I want to spend time with you. I want to disciple you and help you grow. And that pastor's heart also looks at at Timothy and and takes care of Timothy and, and says, watch out for Timothy. Treat him well. Quite possibly, and understand the context here, quite possibly Timothy is delivering 1 Corinthians to them. And and if I was the one delivering 1 Corinthians, I'd want to hand it off and run. Because there are a lot of very direct instructions and and a lot of direct exhortation and discipline about what's going on in the church. And so Timothy, Paul says to treat him well, to send him on his way in peace. Many commentators said, quite possibly the tone is, don't take out your frustration with me on my man. But take care of him. He's a servant of God. He mentions Apollos. And we know that Apollos, some of the divisions in the church at Corinth were over Apollos versus Paul. And some really liked his style of preaching. And some liked Paul's teaching. And and what we see here is that Paul and Apollos are on the same team. Paul isn't mad at Apollos. They're they're together. And and he's probably answering another question there in, in verse 12. Now concerning our brother Apollos, they probably asked, when's he coming? And maybe with sort of the underlying thing of when can we get the pastor we like back? And, and Paul says, he'll come when he comes. I've asked him. I'm not keeping him from you. But he doesn't feel it's God's will right now. And so he doesn't come. And, and perhaps Apollos was sensitive to the divisions and what it might happen if he came. But we see a heart that cares for people. Paul, in, in the first few verses, 5 and 6, talks about his upcoming trip, his plans. 
He wants to, to stay in Ephesus for a while. And, and really, that's the second part is we see Paul's submission to God. And he says, there's an open door for the Gospel here. I can't leave now. God wants me to stay. We see it in, in, in also when he says, if the Lord permits. He's making plans, but he's making them in pencil. And he's allowing God to change them and God to direct them. And he says, God wants me to stay in Ephesus for now. Then my hope is to come to you. And he wants to take the land route, which is up north and then down through Macedonia and then down. And he's talking about churches like Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea that he wants to visit. He's currently in Ephesus. And he wants to come down to them. And if we piece together the timing here, he wants to stay over the winter at Ephesus until Pentecost. And then in the summer months, do his traveling, come down to Corinth, and then winter there because it's not safe to take boats and those journeys in the winter. Winter there, spend some time with them, and then have them help and partner in his journey. But even in all those plans, he says God's will be done. God's will is primary. And we see a submission to God in, the, in this man of God. And, and that's challenging to us because as we think of being men, sometimes we forget the submission part. And we forget that we come under God's rule and authority. Sometimes we can forget the care for others. And so when Paul is saying, be mature, be, be manly, He's talking about submission to God and care for others. When we talk about giving our plans to God, I I mentioned David Livingston. We talked about his father-in-law. But David Livingston was a man who also had to do that. He wanted to be a missionary in China his whole life. That was his passion. And he prayed, God, send me to China. And God sent him to Africa. Not quite the same spot. He spent his entire life serving in Africa. He died there. He served willingly, unreservedly, fruitfully. And he opened up, God through him opened up Africa to the Gospel. He was a willing servant. Never got to go where he thought he should go. But God had a different plan. We saw that over and over with Paul. Paul says, I want to go here, but God said no and directed me here. Sort of bottom line is, are God's plans better than our plans? But we get so frustrated when our plans don't work out, don't we? When left turns come, when circumstances come that we just don't understand. But village maturity means accepting God's plan. And not just resigning ourselves to following it, but embracing it and saying, God knows what we need better than I do. What a picture of a pastor's heart that we're to follow. Giving plans completely to God, but caring for people. One of my favorite Father's Day gifts this year. Doctor Who Mad Libs. I know probably not too many of you are Doctor Who fans, but a few of you are. One of the reasons why this is my favorite is because one of my sons gave this to me three weeks ago. We were at breakfast, and he comes running in and, and he said, Dad, I am so sorry. This is your late Father's Day gift. (laughs) And you know why that means something to me? Number one, he knew I liked Doctor Who. And no one else in my family really cares for Doctor Who. They don't get it. 
Some of you have tried watching it, I can tell. <laughs> but he got me something that he would want, that I would want, rather than what he would want. But the second thing is, is he was so concerned with me and that, I, that he had missed it and making sure I got the gift that he was willing three weeks early to say, Dad, I'm sorry for the late Father's Day gift. He did say I could tell the story, by the way. He cared. It was about doing something for Dad and appreciating Dad instead of doing something for self, which is something that kids fight and we're trying to, to train our kids. It's a sign of maturity, forming, a little seed. I cherish that early, late Father's Day gift. May we care for people in that same way, for each other, not just for our dads, but for each other, and follow God's leading. Then we get to verse 13 and 14. These are really the heart of the passage, and it's another list. And if I had to summarize the list, I'd say be an adult. Be an adult. As Paul talks about how to live in an ungodly world, maybe there's a sense of grow up and be an adult, but six final commands for following Christ in an ungodly world. And catch these. In 13, we get four commands. In 14, we get a fifth that's not always included. And then in, in 16 through 18, we get a sixth. But in 13, he starts by be watchful, is Paul's first command. The idea is be on your guard. Be diligent for God's work. And, and, and being watchful is used in the New Testament in a number of situations. One is looking forward to Christ's return. Be watching for Christ to return. And that makes a difference in how we act, right? It, when, when I was a child, if I knew Dad could come home at any time, I tended to be doing what Dad wanted me to do. If I knew he wasn't coming for four or five hours... <laughs> In, in, in three hours, I could start doing what Dad wanted me to do. I could do what I wanted to do first. Not that I ever did that, Dad. Um, <laughs> you, you know what I mean, though? And so, so Paul is saying, be watchful. Your Heavenly Father can come back at any time. What's He going to find you doing? But also, it has the idea of being on alert. Being watchful for those things that can tear us down. Being watchful for temptation is sometimes how this word is used in the New Testament. Being watchful against apathy, against false doctrine, against divisions. And so if we're to act, act like adults, act manly, we need to be watchful, protecting. This is the dad that is on guard protecting his family from anything that would harm them, intrude them. We need to have that same sense in our spiritual walk. Second command is stand firm in the faith. Know what you believe. Know truth. Know doctrine. And, and, I, and I mean K-N-O-W. Not no truth or no doctrine. But we need to know doctrine and we need to know truth. It's vital. If we're to be mature believers, if we're to stand in a fallen world who culturally are throwing things at us like, oh, the Bible doesn't say that about homosexuality. The Bible doesn't say that about this. The Bible doesn't say that about that. Can we defend it? Because if we can't, we will fall. And we will waver. And so Paul says, if you're going to live in an ungodly world, you better know your word. And we need to be in it. Chesterton said, tolerance is the virtue of those who don't believe anything. We believe something. Know what we believe. Then he gets to the third instruction, act like men. And ladies, this doesn't leave you out. This is written to the whole church. But he's saying, 
if we're to stand strong, we need to take some of those traits that God has given to dads, that God has given to men, and they need to be true of all of us. Act like men. Some of the, the translations say, be men of courage. And the idea is be people, be adults that are mature, that are no longer immature like you talked about in 1 Corinthians 13, but will stand courageously for God. Good word for the church at Corinth who is compromising in so many ways. Stand for truth and stand courageously for God. It's a good word for us too, isn't it? Fourth command then, is to be strong. Be strong. And, and, and the word there is actually a passive usage of the word, which means somebody is making us strong. Allow God to make us strong. See, it, it's so tempting to stand in our own strength. And I will just muster up the strength and from inside of me. And, and I will stand strong on my own. And that's a little bit of what our culture values. But Paul here is saying, be strong in God's strength with how He would direct. I'm reminded of Ephesians 6.10, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. We don't have the strength on our own to live in this ungodly world. But we have the strength in Christ, praise God. And we have the strength in God Almighty. And so when we say be strong be strong in the Lord. The questions we need to ask is, how am I depending on Him? Am I in prayer every day? Am I asking for God's strength? Am I conscious of the work of the Holy Spirit? In situations I go into, am I asking Him to help me stand strong? Be strong in the strength of the Lord. The last two, act like men, or be men of courage and be strong in the Lord. Remind you of anything in Joshua? Be strong and courageous. Over and over we saw that phrase. Be strong and courageous. Paul is echoing that here. You want to live in an ungodly world? Be strong and courageous. Stand up. And sometimes we stop at that verse, right? We stop at verse 13 and we say, well, okay, being, being mature adults, being manly is about being strong and firm. And, and we can get this idea of, of um, just almost harshness if we're not careful there. And so we have in verse 14, Paul says, okay, that's not manhood. That's not maturity. In verse 14, he continues to say, okay, let's, let's talk about maturity. He says, let all that you do be done in love. Let all that you do be done in love. We saw that in chapter 13. He took a whole chapter in the middle of how to act as believers to say everything's got to be founded in love. It's the root of everything. See, manliness isn't self-aggression. It's not self-assertion, but it's combining love with truth, combining love with standing strong. Neither stands on its own. Both are an example of maturity. Both are needed. I love Carl Sandburg's description of Abraham Lincoln. He said, Lincoln was a man of velvet steel. That's this, this balance right here. Of being strong, of standing firm, but being loving. And finally, verses 15 through 18, we get another command. Submit to and value those serving in the church. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first, uh, were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. And that word for devoted sometimes is translated addicted. 
They're addicted to serving people in the church. They've taken on that role. They are servants. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. And we get a great picture of servant leadership. And Paul is saying, you want to lead in the church? You, you want people to follow you? Then be a servant. Be devoted to serving and see what God does. See, sometimes we, we forget that leading in a church is about a ministry heart. It's about a servant's heart. It's not about telling people what to do. And if people feel like they're working for us instead of with us, we've lost our effectiveness as leaders in the church. It's about coming alongside and serving. And Paul says, remember them. Obey them. Submit to them. And every other fellow worker and laborer that is of that type. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence. And what's happening there is those three men probably had come to Paul at Ephesus from Corinth. They probably had brought the letter that Paul is answering. They probably brought a lot of news of what's happening in the church too that Paul is responding to. But Paul says, I'm so glad they came. Even though some of their news was bad, they refreshed me. They filled me up. For they, in verse 18, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. And so Paul talks about servanthood. and says, submit to and value those serving in the church. It's part of what it means to act like a mature adult. Finally, in the rest of the chapter, we get two other points. Verses 19 and 20. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prissa, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. And all the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And letter D there, remember we are part of a larger church family in this world. And we actually see this everywhere in this chapter. We saw it in, in the, the, the gift that was to be given. It was support the church in Jerusalem. And the, the church, other churches, the churches at Galatia are part of you in this. Um, and Paul keeps bringing up, you're not alone. You're part of a bigger church family. And when you think about it, when you think about troubled times, when you think about seeing a world that, that is falling apart, isn't there incredible comfort to know that we're not alone? It's not just Village Bible Church fighting some of the things going on in this country. Some of the moral decline and moral depravity. It's the church as a whole in the United States. Beyond that, there's the church that is active in the world and people are being reached for Christ. We are not alone. And Paul keeps bringing them back to this. The churches of Asia um, probably would have been most of the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 that we, we studied. Aquila and Prissa used to live in Corinth. In fact, they housed Paul when he was there. Now they're in Ephesus hosting a church and reminder of the church at Ephesus the brothers. So Paul's reminding them, you're part of a larger church family. You're not alone brings encouragement. It also combats pride. It's hard to say it's all about me when I'm not alone and there's a much bigger church that God is dealing with. The church of Corinth needed to hear that. It also reminded them of their responsibility to others in the church. But then verse 20 all the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I need a volunteer. No, just kidding. <laughs> we laugh about that verse, right? We're like, okay, we don't do that. I'm not kissing you. But, but this was a tradition at the time and probably a kiss on the cheek where you put cheek to cheek. 
but, but it was an incredible symbol of unity and love in the church. Now keep in mind how important this command was. What was happening in the church between different groups? Division, right? So let's say there's this side that, that believes one thing, this side that believes another, and you guys sort of hate each other, okay? Just pretend. I know you don't. But if you hate each other, and Paul says, okay, meet in the middle and kiss one another. What this is doing is saying every week you're to be reconciled with each other. Every week do something that is welcoming, that promotes unity, that says we will not let divisions exist. And Paul just gives a real practical way. Now for us that might be a hug. That might be a handshake for those that aren't huggers. And that's okay. But something that shows relationship. What if every week some of the people you struggle with are the very people you sought out and made sure you gave hugs to or shook their hands? Now don't go thinking next week, oh, he shook my hand, he must be mad at me. No, no, that, that's... But do you see what Paul's doing? He's practically saying, get over it and grow up and let's get past the divisions and start to care about each other. That's a good message. That's an important message. I do this with my kids. They fight and we talk about it. They get disciplined and then they have to hug each other. And boy, that's the point of resistance. Oh, I forgave her, but I'm not hugging her. Because that tells me the heart hasn't reconciled yet. And then just for fun, after they hug, I say, now you've got to kiss her. And they're like, no, but we don't actually do that. But what will reconcile us to each other? Paul says, greet each other with a holy kiss. And finally, at the end, to sum it all up, the last three verses, four verses, remember these four last things from a man living for God. And if we remember anything out of 1 Corinthians, I'd remember Paul's instruction here. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. He takes the pen from his manuensis, from the person that's writing. He writes in his own hand. And, and some people think his eyesight was bad, so maybe this was bigger. But it was his signature mark. And he ends with four things that are true of him that I think are examples for us to follow. The first is love the Lord. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. This is actually a pretty serious statement. A curse there is anathema in, in the Greek. And it means to be cursed with a curse by God. And he's dealing with people in the church that are pretending to be Christians. And he said, if there's people in the church that are just going through the motions and they don't have a love or affection is the word that's used here for the Lord, let them be accursed. It's a reminder to us that we're to have affection and love for the Lord more than this world. More than the ungodly world. Love the Lord. The second thing you see there is our Lord come. Look for His coming. And that's actually an Aramaic word. It's one of the places where Paul uses Aramaic. And it's the Aramaic word Maranatha. Have you ever heard that word? It used to be in the 70s it was really big, right? We'd all say Maranatha. And it literally means our Lord come. And it was a statement imploring His coming. Very similar to a song that we sometimes sing called Jesus Hurry, where Jesus Hurry, come back. I can't wait. That was this attitude. And we see it throughout the, the early church. Come Lord, come now. Love the Lord. Look for His coming. And these, you can tell these are summaries of what He's already said. Then He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. 
And Paul always comes back to grace in his letters. He can't get enough of it. And so the third thing there is live in his grace. Dependence on him. Gratefulness for his grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. And then finally, 24, with an appropriate last sentence. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. And his example would be to love each other. And at the end, after he said, nothing, nothing, everything is worthless if it's done without love, the very last thing he says is, I love you. I love you. And so to sum up 1 Corinthians, love the Lord, look for His coming, live in His grace, love each other. That's how we act like mature adults. That's how we act like men and women of God. May we today, as we finish 1 Corinthians and on Father's Day, remember Paul wants us, all of us, to be manly for Christ. To stand up, be strong, be loving, look for His return, follow Him. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, praise You for Your Word. For this last chapter to a church that's struggling in a dark world, Lord, and I pray that we would resonate with these these, um, lessons to be sacrificial, Lord, to be servants, to stand strong, to know the truth, to walk with You, to look for Your coming, to recognize I need Your grace every day and it's not my power but Your strength to live on, to love one another. Lord, these are all instructions You've given to protect us from a fallen world to help us stand firm without compromise, making a difference for the kingdom. Lord, help us today to take these and put them into practice and to be a church that acts like men and women of God, mature believers, ready to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.